Good morning. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 24. We're going to pick up the narrative together in verse 13. And I'll grab mine. Today, we're going to investigate the story of Jesus' resurrection. I don't think I could overstate the significance or impact that Jesus' resurrection has and will have on the course of history and the future of the cosmos. The way that scripture talks about the events of Easter, it's as if one reality-defining story reached its grand conclusion on Good Friday. When Jesus died a sacrificial death for us. And another reality-defining story began when Jesus walked out of the tomb alive and immortal on Easter Sunday. The New Testament calls the resurrection of Jesus the beginning of new creation, a moment that is equally significant, even surpassing the Big Bang. It is easy to read the empty tomb, though, is just kind of this heartwarming, ambiguous, slightly unrealistic conclusion to Jesus' like Hallmark-style movie biopic. Wow, isn't that nice? He got his happy ending after all. Hopefully we will get our happy ending too one day. But it's so much more than that. The resurrection, it's fraught with purpose. So we have to ask, why did God raise Jesus from the dead? Well, first, the resurrection is God's overruling of the human verdict that condemned Jesus. It's kind of Jesus' personal vindication. His, if you play basketball, his, his ball don't lie moment. If the punishment didn't stick, then the verdict didn't fit. Second, the resurrection is God's triumph over the designs of Satan. It's heaven's victory. The forces of evil emptied their full fury upon Jesus. But instead of thwarting God's plan or putting a final end to his son, it's actually through Jesus' willing, sacrificial demise that God brought about salvation. Jesus' return to victorious, unquenchable life breaks the power of evil and exposes Satan as a spent force. Third, the resurrection is a demonstration of God's power over death, humanity's final enemy. It's this moment of great reversal for the universe. No longer will death and entropy and decay have the final word Behold, God in Christ is making all things new and good, beautiful and lasting, even us. The resurrection is the climax that starts a whole new story. But when we come to Luke's gospel this morning, he approaches Easter Sunday with a different concern. He does not invite us to be amazed and marvel at the empty tomb He doesn't ask us to ponder the theological, metaphysical, philosophical implications of Jesus' return to life. Luke wants to equip us to recognize Jesus as the risen Lord, which leads us 
to a dusty road leading away from Jerusalem. This is what we read starting in verse 13. On that very day, two of them, two disciples of Jesus, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near. He's risen from the dead. This is Easter morning and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. It's Easter morning and these two disciples have already hit the road. The moment the Sabbath travel restrictions lift, they're booking it out of town. They're fleeing from danger in Jerusalem and they're fleeing from disappointment in their hearts. Jesus, the one in whom they'd invested their hope, was decried as a traitor. He was convicted by the Jewish authorities and he was publicly executed in brutal fashion by the Romans. The two fear getting caught up in the swell. They don't want to be casualties in what they anticipate will be the backlash against Jesus' followers. So they forsake the cause. They forsake the community to save their own skins. They're abandoning Jesus. But he, freshly risen from the grave, is drawing near to them. What grace. They're running away as fast as they can, and Jesus sidles up alongside, accompanying them on their journey. And they're so lost in their thoughts, so deep in their despair, so blinded to what God has done, that they don't even recognize him. And we read in verse 18, Then one of them, Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But what we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And yes, besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So Uncle Cleo and his friend are disputing together. And I call him Uncle Cleo because I have trouble with that name, Cleopas, but also because scholars believe that this is actually Jesus' paternal uncle. This is someone who's been with him from his early days in Galilee, the brother to his adoptive father, Joseph. And Cleopas and his companion, they're passionately discussing what has gone wrong. They're processing through the collapse of their dreams and expectations. 
and kind of shocked by the ignorance of their fellow traveler, Cleopas brings all his facts to the table. Maybe this stranger's outside perspective can illuminate something they cannot see. So here's Cleopas's data set. Jesus was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people. Seems kind of underselling Jesus a bit, but he's jaded by Jesus' death. He was delivered up by the religious and political leadership of Israel. He was condemned to death and crucified. And it's been three days since his passing. This morning, their fellow female disciples reported his tomb to be empty and that the heavy stone had been rolled away. The only thing of value in the tomb, those linen wrappings that had been around his body, were left behind, neatly folded. The women claimed to see a vision of angels who declared that Jesus was alive, and a male disciple has corroborated the concrete details of their account But notably, they did not see Jesus with their own eyes. Cleopas has a solid data set, but he finds it inconclusive. It could have been a mix-up with the tombs. The body could have been stolen. This could all be elaborate ruse to kind of try to save Jesus' brand. If only a voice had spoken from heaven to confirm and explain these baffling events. Sure, the women reported angels who claimed that Jesus was alive, and and this is astounding, men, because it seems that one of the women at the tomb is actually Cleopas' own wife. But Cleopas was a, a product of his time. He's like, you know, women, they're hysterical and unreliable because of hormones and lady parts. This is just delirious rantings. We can't. They're emotionally distraught. What he really wants was for someone, a, a man, to have seen Jesus with his own eyes. If only there was someone with visual evidence of Jesus having been raised to life, then maybe he could recalibrate and believe that the impossible had happened Without that, though, do you catch the irony there? Cleopas has right in front of him what he claims he needs, what he requires to believe, but it is not enough to overcome his unbelief and his skepticism that Jesus has risen from the dead. And I so appreciate this scene because I too want confirmation that all this is true. And while I have seen Jesus' empty tomb over there in Israel beneath the church of the Holy Sepulcher, I've not witnessed Jesus alive in the flesh. I've not heard with my own ears the angel's testimony. So how can I or any of Luke's readers, for that matter, have confidence that this is true? Is it simply blind faith? These are enigmatic events that humans struggle to fathom, but God in his grace intervenes to make sense of what has taken place. 
Cleopas and his companion experience illumination because an unexpected stranger comes alongside of them in their doubt. Jesus, still unrecognized, responds to their frantic thoughts. Verse 25, And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? In what way were they foolish and slow of heart? Well, let's look back at what we've seen. First, the angel spoke that gentle reprimand to the women gathered at the tomb. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Yes, they'd come to do something admirable, to honor Jesus with a proper burial, not the the rush job that had taken place on Friday night. They're there to show their gratitude, anointing his body with fragrant spices. They plan to perform one last act of love and then return to their former lives. How many of us approach Easter in this way? Thank you for all you've done for us, Jesus. The beautiful life you lived, the way you honored us. We say thank you. Those were good days. No, the angels say, why do you speak and live as if his story has ended? Why do you seek the living in the dustbin of history? The angel's second mild rebuke was for not remembering what Jesus had said to them. The women were in Jesus' inner circle. The angels say, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Friends, this was the plan he told you about from the outset. Next, they're kept from recognizing Jesus there in verse 16. Apparently, seeing is not believing because their vision is clouded by their false hopes and their self-focused dreams. Right? They said that we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They knew what they were looking for, a military leader who would unite and rally all Israel to their cause, who would launch a violent revolution, chase off the Romans, and establish political independence in the land. And despite what Jesus had revealed about his heart and his mission, they have no category for a suffering Savior, no ability to accept death on their behalf. They only want a Savior who secures the death of their enemies, not who gives his life for them. As we saw, they also cannot receive the testimony of the women. Even though God often used the quote-unquote foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the quote-unquote weak in the world to shame the strong. And they cannot receive what the prophets have spoken They're deaf to the word that God has given. And then beginning with Moses and the prophets, verse 27, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is towards evening and the day is now far spent. 
So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed. And he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Friends, this is the answer. It's also my answer to the question that if time travel were real and you could go anywhere, future or past, and do anything, what would you do? Well, I'd strap on my Birkenstocks, I would brush up on my Aramaic, and I would join Jesus, Cleopas, and their unnamed companion on this three-hour walk and talk, this, this Bible study as Jesus explains from Genesis to Malachi how all Scripture points to him. Now, this will really throw you for a loop. Why don't we know the identity of the third guy? Maybe time travel is real, and I am there, future me is there in the past as the anonymous companion, right? A man can hope, right? I know I've watched too many sci-fi shows, but I digress. Okay, cleansing breath. Back to reality. What confidence do we have that Jesus has been raised from the dead? How do we come to recognize Jesus as our living and risen Savior and Lord. Jesus lays out for us a process that doesn't replace faith. Faith will still always be required, but it bolsters our faith. It gives us a deep sense in our being of the reality of Jesus' resurrection. It grants confidence to our hope so that it no longer just feels like a shot in the dark. How does Jesus come alongside his doubting and skeptical disciples? What process does Luke lay out for us to recognize Jesus as the risen Lord? Well, step one is this. Remember Jesus' words and ministry. The angels tell the women, don't you remember what he said to you? Not just the overt predictions of his death, but everything. I'm the good shepherd who lays down my life for the sheep. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. Would that you, even you, had known what makes for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. The women are called to remember, and once they do, they see the tomb, not from a perspective of confusion any longer, but of faith. They hear he is not here, but he has risen, and they become passionate evangelists, no longer timid and fearful. So do you want to recognize Jesus as our risen Lord and Savior? Read the Gospels. Remember his words and ministry. It will grow your faith and your confidence in God's working. 
That's step one. Step two, read Jesus' life and death in light of the divine plan for salvation laid out in scriptures. We had a tangible expression of this just on Friday night as we waded into the story of the almost sacrifice of Isaac on Mount Moriah on that literal same mountain where Jesus was crucified and we heard Abraham's cry of faith ring out, the Lord will provide himself the lamb and then a father receives his son back alive. We also, a week ago, did a Seder, a Passover Seder with the students. And as we We recall the story of God redeeming Israel from slavery in Egypt as we walk through the rhythms of the Passover feast. We saw hints and echoes and signs pointing to Jesus, our Passover lamb. Our Savior who not only dies for us under whose blood we find refuge, but the one who leads us through and to the other side of those death defining defying waters of the red sea the waters of chaos the waters of death he leads us through and out the other side into our promised inheritance just last sunday we talked about that tree that made the bitter waters of mara sweet before we were led into the abundance of elam call it coincidence but i find courage and confidence when I see God writing this same grand drama over thousands of years of human history. And then step three, in the gathering of the Christian community over a fellowship meal, Jesus will become present to his disciples in word and the sharing of testimony in the breaking of bread. I have a uniquely personal connection to this passage. In the house I grew up in, in my parents' living room, was a painting of Cleopas and his buddy walking the road to Emmaus with Jesus. And below the painting was these words, did our hearts not burn within us as we talked with him on the way? Now I lived that same experience in that very room. Yes, I put my faith in Jesus at a young age. He was a a refuge for me in in a tumultuous time when my parents split up and my life was splintered by divorce. I experienced grace in our father's heart as my stepfather stepped into my life and loved me as my heavenly father loves me. But then Jesus became real in a far more profound way for me in high school and then in college In my parents' family room, beneath the painting of the road to Emmaus, I hosted a guy's Bible study. And we didn't have a youth leader or a teacher. We just had a hunger to meet Jesus in the pages of Scripture. We ate my parents out of house and home. We we played GoldenEye and Super Mario Smash Brothers on the N64 until our eyes hurt. And then we explored and wrestled through the most interesting and bizarre parts of Scripture that we could get our hands on. And you know what? Our hearts burned. It was like grabbing hold of a live wire, something real, something so true and beautiful and powerful that it could shape the very course of our lives. And I like to say that I got lost and then found again in the great story of God. 
And then as college started, many who I grew up with in the church started to fall away. And I went off to a public university in the San Francisco Bay Area, a pagan and godless place, most people say. And I got involved with a group on campus called InterVarsity, and I joined a, a multicultural students' Bible study in the dorms. And again, I met Jesus as we cooked and as we played together and as we prayed together and as we printed out pages of Scripture and colored all over them with colored pens. And as we asked a hundred questions and we shared our stories of faith, of how we had met Jesus, we spoke to our classmates who didn't know Christ of how God has shown up in the real and the tangible, the everyday stuff of our lives. And in that moment, we knew the living Christ. You see, Jesus isn't acting when he pretends to go farther down the road. He'll keep going if we don't desire his company. But when we do, when we invite him in, when we make room in our lives for the stranger both our strange Savior and his strange people who have been rescued by grace, we meet Jesus resurrected and immortal. We meet him in the breaking of bread, whether that be the bread of the word, the bread of our testimonies, the bread of fellowship, the bread of communion. He shows up in the breaking of bread. In the study of God's word, his spirit shows up in the community of God's people. And, his, and Uncle Cleo and his buddy experienced this and noticed their results. This is how the story ends. Their hearts burn with passion and love. Their eyes are open to see Jesus in their midst. And instead of running from danger, they turn and they embrace risk. They sprint back to Jerusalem, back to their community, back to the new thing that God is doing in Jesus. And there's no longer any fear because he is victorious. And then God opens their mouths to give witness to his goodness, to who Jesus is, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do when he comes again. I wish I could give each and every one of you definitive confirmation that Jesus is who he says he is. I wish you could hear a voice from heaven. I wish you could see Jesus with your own eyes. And I am confident that one day we will. But honestly, that is not the proof that you need. That didn't help Cleopas and his companion. They needed to meet Jesus in the intimacy of their everyday lives. On the road, at the table, in community. They need Jesus to show up in the ordinary reality of their existence. And guess what? He did. And he does. That was what was first up on his agenda when he rose from the dead. And he will still show up if you desire his company. If you open yourself to faith to you today. So again, if you want to recognize Jesus as our living and risen Lord, 
Remember Jesus' words and ministry. Read his life and death in light of the divine plan for salvation written across the pages of Scripture. And then gather in Christian community. Break bread and Jesus will become present to you in his word as you share your stories. As you eat together. And then prepare yourselves this Easter for your hearts to burn, for your eyes to open, for you to embrace risk and adventure, community and newness, and for your mouth to be unleashed to proclaim what he's done and what he's doing. Amen? Christ is risen. Let's try that one more time. Christ is risen. Hallelujah. Worship team, can you send us out singing?